Disclaimer. Disclaimer. I hardly know her. This show is not suitable for young listeners due to explicit language and sometimes explicit themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 68 of Teach Me Tiger. This is cool. Nothing's wrong. But why do I feel like a psychopath? To teach me tiger the show where i melody speak to my experty friends and we all learn about new stuff today we're talking attachment theory with viara milova who was on episode 43 mom jeans in which she talked about her research in early parenting among other things great episode and it got a lot of downloads just so you know you're popular oh that's nice to hear so co-hosting today is our good buddy elizabeth cooper hey liz Hi. And hi, Viara. Hi. Okay, so I just have a quick announcement. It's pretty exciting, you guys. I think you're going to like it. Well, there's a... Wait, so there's good and there's bad. Let me tell you the bad first. So this is our second last episode of the season. So I'm going to take a break till the fall because my kids are home from school and life's crazy. I need a a break. Yeah, yeah. So season finale is going to be the next one. Did you guys... Were you guys paying attention when I said what episode number it is? Oh, I was. It's going to be episode 69, baby. Uh, I guess that one. Okay, awesome. And and we're going to talk about oral sex. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Isn't it? (laughs) Who's going to be the guest? I'm not sure yet. We haven't figured out our expert, but Sarah's going to be on, obviously. (laughs) I love it. Yep um oh and i also wanted to say for my patrons on patreon patreon.com slash teach me tiger podcast i'll be pausing your subscriptions while the podcast is on break so you won't be paying for nothing when i'm doing nothing okay today we're going to be exploring the different attachment styles Viara, you can help me if i'm not uh explaining this well but it's a way of relating to others emotionally that according to attachment theory is developed initially like when we're infants or like in our childhoods yeah yes exactly in like how our parents related to us kind of thing or not necessarily our parents our our primary caregivers so whoever took on that role so we've all got an attachment style as a result of all the shit that happened when we were little kids and it comes up a lot in interpersonal relationships and especially romantic relationships yay (laughs) it affects you for life yay (laughs) okay so we're gonna get into all of the attachment stuff much more in depth but first we're gonna do a quick icebreaker question do you guys remember this game i do i'm excited who would like to reach into my box I would. Roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks, reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. Okay. Reach. 
Oh, it's caught in the box. That's what she said. <laughs> Would you rather lose your left hand or your right foot? Mm. Are you left uh, or right-handed? I think that's I'm an important. Right-handed. I'm right-handed. Wait, so left hand or right foot? Yeah. Probably the left hand. Yeah. Right? I think I would because say that I, too. I would need my feet to walk and I just started skateboarding. So I would need that. So yeah. Yeah. Left hand. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Liz. Uh, so it was right hand or left foot, left hand or right foot. But I think we should probably switch it around if we're all right handed, to be honest. Yeah. I think it should be right hand, left foot. I'm still going to say my hand because I can learn my profession is photography. Mm-hmm. I can learn how to take. Actually, I don't know if they have left-handed bodies, but I'm sure they do have camera bodies that are for the left-handed person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In which case, you can just modify that. But if you're not able to walk, I think it would be very difficult. So, I'm going to say right hand. Stick it to your guns. What about um, you, Liz? I... Yeah, I have to say hands. Yeah, I could like strap some cool prosthetic on there and, um, you know, still do the stuff I need to do. But my feet, I, I mean, I, I could absolutely could do that with feet. There's lots of people who use prosthetics and have no issues. <sighs> but I still say hand. Yeah, I don't know, man. You can get a foot. <laughs> you can get a foot. It's true. Yeah, I think I would have to keep both my hands either way because I make stuff too much. Yeah, I don't know. I do that too. It's hard. If you're an artist who lost their dominant hand, Mm -hmm. you could make cool art with your other hand, and that would be part of your artist statement. Like there's a there's a there's an artist I follow in Scotland, and he's blind, Mm -hmm. and he he went blind like during his adulthood, so he has memory of what the world used to look like visually, Mm -hmm. and so. He makes this incredible art based on visualizations that he has from memory and just kind of feelings. And so I think, I mean, that makes him so unique. So I think that if you were similar, like let's say you lost your dominant hand, you could make, you know, approximations or some kind of new art (laughs) with your other hand. And I think that Mm -hmm. would give you an incredibly novel angle, I think. Yeah, it could be. So don't fear. Don't fear losing your hand. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was really worried about it for a while, but you're right. I I think it'll be okay when I lose my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you asked. You asked. I remember once being at my friend's house and her mom had a calendar of like mouth and foot painters images. And I was like completely clueless. I was just like, why (laughs) would you paint with your mouth? Like, why would you do that? No. <laughs> My friend was like, because uh, they don't have any hands. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> people do pretty great stuff with their mouths, too. I would think you would poison yourself slowly over time, though. Like people did with like lead and paint and stuff. You mean those people who paint amazing pictures with paintbrushes in their mouths? Yes. How would that poison them? Because paint. But they're using the paintbrush. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> what was it that women i'm getting really off topic but i'll keep it brief i listened to a whole podcast about this i think it was on uh my favorite murder they talked about women who worked at this office or something and in the paint there was like a crazy toxic chemical and it made their jaws and like their teeth all just like crumble because they would like 
put the brush in their mouth. It was the women, they called them radon girls. Radon, yes. And and it was women who were using radioactive paint to paint the ends of clock hands on clock dials and watch faces. And so, you know how like on old fashioned clocks and, and watches, the hands and the numbers glow. Mm-hmm. So the paint was radioactive and they were encouraged to put the paintbrushes in their mouth and pull it out to make it a really fine tip so they could right. paint really finely. And then they all got like really hideous forms of cancer because how would they have known that? Right, right, right. Yeah. Crazy. Super crazy. Um. Okay. Is your ice broken, ladies? My ice is so broken. Great. I don't have ice left. Literally wow. and figuratively. Are you sitting in a puddle? I have drank my sangria and all the ice has melted. <laughs> Perfect. Icebreakers. So we also do week peaks, but I'm thinking maybe we could talk about like pandemic projects. So ladies, do you have any recent pandemic projects or week peaks? I have one. What's yours? Okay, so I think I said this the last time I recorded with you, which was a few months ago now. But I I mentioned that I was taking an illustration course at Emily Carr in that last podcast. Yes. And so now I'm in the thick of it. And um, I had my first critique the other day. And it went very well. And my teacher told me that I could put the piece I made in a portfolio. Oh, wow. Nice. I think. I know. That's so exciting. I can't believe it. So I'm I'm pretty stoked about that as a, a boost. So I have a question for you, Liz. Does being in this kind of virtual schooling environment take you back to the days of photography school or not really? Not really, because I was a big old hot mess. And um, (laughs) I was not really able to like, deal with my life in any sort of reasonable way. I was pretty checked out, I would say. So no, I mean, it does in the fact that we're talking about art and stuff, but I like, am just more competent now. And I was just such a burnout back then. So a little bit, but like, I'm better now. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Like talking to people who have gone back to college or whatever as adults, I'm like, man, I want to go back to school. I would slay school now. You You know, slayed school when we were both burnouts. You were so good at it. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't retain much, though. But thank you. Thank you. That's nice. (laughs) You were always so good. You're always like working on writing art history papers and everything. I don't miss that, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So that's mine. I'm pretty happy about it. Well done. (laughs) <laughs> thanks it's really great um i'm excited to do the next the next piece of work what hey, about you guys uh so i started skateboarding on father's day and i'm really into it surprisingly there's a whole big backstory though to probably how this came about which we can get into later when we talk about attachment oh but on the surface i'm skateboarding and i'm really loving it and it's now day eight and today my daughter and I went to Dali Skate Park early in the morning. We left just before 8, and so we were there in the morning hours when nobody else shows up. And shockingly, a human being had defecated in a little <gasps> corner of Dali Skate Park. And another human being, or maybe the same one, had thrown gravel into one of the kind of skating areas of the skate park. So that was a little bit of a downer. But I also, you know, conquered my fears. Like, it's it's funny because at this age, I teach other, like, I, I do a lot of online coaching and marketing. And 
overcoming your limiting beliefs and, you know, facing your fears. And it's starting to skateboard has thrown me into a completely different dimension of conquering your fears. Because until now, it's just been a very non-physical conquering of fears is very mental starting a business with not having any clue about how to run a business you know becoming a photographer getting clients all these things which I kind of did a little bit haphazardly I did them because I needed to and with skateboarding it's a very intentional thing you know you cannot improve until you can conquer really come head first face on with your fear and then overcome it so it's really overt so this morning for instance we're at dally park and there's this this many slopes they're called transitions there's many steeper slopes and less steep slopes and slants and curves and all these things right and so day eight as a complete novice on a skateboard i was deathly afraid of this one little tiny tiny slope this very gradual slope and my daughter was there and she was like, you can do this. Just do it to stop thinking about it and do it. And I, I pushed myself and I thought I was going to poop my pants. And no. at the, like, Not yet, the I, only did it. I didn't fall. I didn't <laughs> fall. But what happened was like, you know, like when you do something like someone almost hits you on the road or something, you have that like fight or flight, like that burst of adrenaline in your body. And it makes you feel kind of woozy and, and like numb. And so I had that like immediately after but it was something that I did on purpose. And then I immediately after that was like, I'm going to do it again right away so that I can kind of overcome this feeling of like, because otherwise it's a very easy to just say, well, I don't want to do this again because it made me feel really like shaky and woozy. So I did it again. Tiny accomplishment, right? But so big in, for me. So skateboarding, uh, what, I, what I find is that it's just full of these little tiny milestones that only you can appreciate and other people, I guess, who have been there and who have gone through their own little graduated journey. And it's really amazing. Like, it just, it's so addicting. And I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I'm very happy. Nice. Do you snowboard or like surf or anything like that? Do you do other boards? Never in my life. I've never skied. I've never snowboarded. I, I used to do like some roller skating when, when I was a kid. Like I'm talking like 10 years old and someone showed me their penis and I kind of stopped after that. Um, <laughs> that's a different story. Oh, but, but then and then I rollerbladed like very occasionally in my teens and like adult life, you know, just down the road when it's nicely paved, go for a rollerblade. So that was about it. And so my whole life, I had always looked at skateboarders. I mean, my husband has been a skateboarder since I've known him. He skateboarded since he was 13. I met him when he was like 20 and I've watched him skateboarding for years on and off and I've never honestly the story I told myself was it's just not for me it's just I would probably fall and I'd probably not be very good at it and I don't know why I told myself this story I watched my children learn how to skateboard I watched them handle the transitions on our skate ramp and you know face their fears and do all the things and I was always the observer like taking photos and that's how I got my kicks, but never in a million years that I imagined that I could be a skateboarder. I don't know why. I Do you really know don't know that that's kind of the same as me with illustration. And I might've even mentioned it on the last podcast, but like, I've always identified as someone who can't draw. And I was like, well, ah, whatever. I just can't draw. Yes. You've told me that before. That is very, very similar. Yes. Yeah. The skateboarding yeah. thing. I feel like I couldn't do it. When I've tried to stand on a skateboard, I feel like just even standing on it, I'm like, I'm going to die. I find it really scary. I agree. Me too. I've never so, seen one. It looks scary. How often do you actually get on a skateboard, though? Like, how often have you been on a skateboard? Once every 10 years. 
I feel like it is probably this imagined scenario that you have because once you actually cruise a little bit down the street with your knees bent, you will realize, wow, this is totally doable. It's not actually that scary because that's exactly the same story I was telling myself. Mm-hmm. I think I tried to get on a skateboard when I was like 16 or something for like a split second and it rolled away and I thought, this is impossible based on that very limited experience that I had and I just told myself this lifelong story of how it's incredibly difficult and now I'm like already seeing huge progress in myself like I'm going down this little transitions and feels great so I think anybody can do it if I can do it nice that's awesome I think it's super cool so what's new with you Mel what are any new uh, pandemic hobbies well I've been talking on the last several podcasts about my ukulele but that's going strong nice I'm learning a lot of songs that aren't like ukulele songs there's some pop songs that sound really sad well the ukulele usually makes everything sound happy but like it's interesting what it does to like a a pop song did you um did you listen to the eddie vetter ukulele album no i didn't i didn't know there was one every single song on that album is really depressing it's a beautiful album but it's just sad eddie vetter with his little ukulele ukulele. are you gonna play a song for us mel oh uh no not right now <laughs> i'd have to like go find it oh. i'd have if to get really, a mic you stand have to go find it like you don't know where your ukulele is right now uh, i'm not ready to perform on the podcast okay, <laughs> okay fair enough <laughs> but yes i'm loving the ukulele and it's like a real mental health thing for me too you know to like have this thing to focus on and like every day i sit and i go through the songs i play them each like a few times i probably sit for like half an hour and I think it's good for my brain. Nice. You know? That's really great. That sounds awesome. We did icebreakers. Are you guys ready to get into some attachment theory? I am. I'm ready. So, VR, what are the what are the basic like attachment styles? So, uh, just full disclosure, I am looking right at a presentation that I created back in 2000 and I don't know, 14, 13, when I was full on in academia and it was, um, what I did and it's been several years since then. So I'm just brushing up on this. So the childhood attachment styles, which I assume we're going to start with are secure and insecure. So about 70%, 60 to 70% of children worldwide fall into secure, and then the other children fall into insecure. And there's multiple types of those. You can be avoidant, resistant, or disorganized as a child. So that's the broad kind of breakdown. Is um, disorganized anxious? Are those the same? So I would say that the resistant Sometimes it goes by different names. Right. So in childhood, we say secure, avoidant, resistant, or disorganized. And is disorganized is where you're like both avoidant and resistant? Yes, exactly. You don't have like a organized strategy. You kind of use one or the other or both at the same time. So you seek closeness, but when people get close to you, you avoid them. So you, you seek that attachment but then you don't want it. So it's you just don't really have an organized strategy. Um, and it, that, is, that is, in childhood, that is the, the disorganized attachment in childhood is the one that is the worst predictor in terms of life outcomes, in terms of how you do um, in school, how you do with later relationships, with peers, pretty much disorganized is not what you want to be if you could pick for yourself. Unfortunately, obviously you can't. 
and about 13% of children fall into that. Yikes. That sounds terrible. Like difficult. I know. Yeah, it, it is difficult. And, and we'll talk later about this. I mean, these things are malleable. So we're mm-hmm. talking about childhood. And then we'll talk about adult attachment styles, which I'm less familiar with, because that wasn't my research. Right, right, right. And as an academic, former academic, we're very accurate. And so if we didn't study something and research something, we, <laughs> we almost like shy away from talking about it, which is the polar opposite to what you see in lay media, where people are very quick to give very strong stances and, you know, kind of sum up the research whereas if you're an academic you don't you just don't do that we have this reluctance to do that and it makes us sometimes seem like we're uninformed and that's the opposite from the truth it's just that if you haven't studied something specifically and published on it it is very difficult to talk about it mm-hmm. with confidence if that makes sense right well this podcast for the most part is just one of those podcasts my uh, brother-in-law calls it nice people reading Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think we can get a bit different than Wikipedia here, but for sure, I'm just, I have that hat on right now. My former academic hat. Anytime I talk about adult attachment, it's just basically what I picked up since I left academia because I, I didn't dabble in that during my days of grad school. Can I ask you, what does an academic hat look like? Does it have like a really big fancy feather? No, there's no fancy feathers in my hat. <laughs> it's like, you know, probably like bright pink and like otherwise pretty plain. <laughs> okay, so Vera, you broke down the different attachment styles like childhood attachment. And so when you're talking about it, you were talking about adult attachment styles. Are those different or do you just mean like you haven't studied how the childhood attachment styles manifest in adults? I think that they're basically the same. They pretty much map onto adult attachment styles. What I mean is that I've never really studied anything about adult attachment. Right. So for instance, I've read that there's some stability between, you know, some kind of, so if you're a secure child, you're more, most likely to be a securely attached adult in your Mm -hmm. relationships. And that's about as much as I, you know, there's a lot of literature out there and continues to be. I just did a quick search to kind of prepare for this podcast. And there's a lot of literature out there on how different types are predicted and what kind of effects they have on your behavior as an adult and whether they're stable. And what emerges is this picture of like, yes, you can you can be a certain type of attachment style as an adult. And yes, you can change it. However, it is difficult people tend to be one attachment style. Mm-hmm. And the way I guess you could change it or shift away from it is if you become aware of your attachment style as an adult, if you become aware of your attachment style, because let's say it's causing problems in your relationship or in your relationships with friends or your partner, romantic partner or other partner, then you can take steps to change it. Mm-hmm. However, it's, it's going to be a work, right? It's going to take a lot of work. So I want to say, I want us to talk about quickly, like what it means. So if you're securely attached, we can talk about like how we become this way. But if you're securely attached, you're like, typically pretty relaxed in relationships, right? How do you You just believe that you don't have to do any kind of overt behaviors to get your partner to love you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to resort to mind games. You don't have to resort to clinginess, quote unquote, right? Clinginess mm-hmm. or these kind of behaviors, which 
can actually cause problems in relationships because you are secure that you've got this attachment to your partner. You've got this bond. If your partner is away from you, you feel okay about that. If your partner is with other people, you're, you feel okay about that. So, Mm -hmm. and that stems from a secure attachment in childhood for the most part. So if you had parents who were responsive to your needs as a little baby Mm -hmm. and as a toddler, And when you cried, they picked you up and they cuddled you, whatever. All these things that, you know, we call kind of responsive parenting behavior, then you're more likely to be a secure child, which means you're more likely to be a secure adult, which means you're not going to fear if your partner does something that, you know, is away from you or Mm -hmm. potentially other people of other attachment styles might interpret as threatening the relationship, like hanging out with their friends or having a hobby away from you and all these kind of things. Right, right, right. Okay, so and then there's resistant or anxious. And my understanding of that, because I think I probably have an anxious attachment style is that like someone with an anxious attachment style fears abandonment. Yes, exactly. And funny enough, you probably read this book attached. Is it called attached? Can't there, remember. I know that is a big book. I haven't read it. But okay. people talk about so it. I just finished the audiobook uh, a few weeks ago. And the interesting thing about this type of adults who have this anxious attachment style is that they're actually more in tune with emotional cues. I guess you could think of it as kind of like a canary in the coal mine. So adults who have this attachment style can detect emotional changes on a person's face earlier than any other people can. So they've done studies with this where they, they'll have uh, people who change emotion on their faces. So they make one face and they make another face and there's this transition between emotions. And the people who have this attachment, uh, sorry, anxious attachment style, they're actually able to spot when the emotions are changing far earlier than any other adults can. Mm-hmm. So the theory is that these adults are much more in tune with signals that others give visual emotional signals that could signify a threat to their relationship and they're much more likely to not just be attuned to these signals and notice them but also interpret them as threatening so they're much more trigger happy and saying like okay our relationship is there's a threat to our relationship we're breaking up something bad's happening so they feel on high alert much more easily than people who are securely attached right so it can be a good thing because you're more in tune with people's emotions but it can also be a bad thing because you tend to overreact more often and you tend to think that you're identifying a real trigger a real red flag when actually there might not be one Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That reads. <laughs> That's fascinating. So and then the avoidantly attached person, where the anxiously attached person's worst fear is abandonment, the avoidantly attached person's worst fear would be like having someone to depend on them or needing things of them. Yeah, or like having any sort of breach in their freedom kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And this tends to stem from a childhood where the caregiver was rejecting, so consistently rejecting. So let's say their their mother, let's say they were a child, and every time they cried, the mother consistently rejected uh, answering those cries. So you learn that there's just no point in crying. There's no point in reaching out to your parent because they're not going to respond to you consistently. So so it's kind of a, a rule that you learn. So at least there was some stability in this 
you know, the fact that they were just not going to respond to you. Right. So you learn to basically cope with that by not wanting that attachment by just kind of avoiding it. And when they do studies with children or tests with kids in this, they do the strange uh, situation test. So this is a test in which the parent and the child go to the lab to be tested and the parent leaves the room and then they basically are observing how the, the kid behaves once mom or dad leaves the room, the primary caregiver leaves the room. And normally a normal response would be to cry. Your parent leaves. So you cry and you, you're sad about it. And then the parent comes back and a secure child would rush to the parent. They crawl over. Usually these are toddlers. So they crawl over to the, to the mom. Usually it's a mom. And then they, the mom comforts them and then they calm down. That's a secure child. An avoidant child, when the mom comes back to the room, they actually don't want anything to do with her. They're like, you left me. I'm done with you. <laughs> like, I don't I don't take comfort in your presence. So the fact that you've come back to the room doesn't mean anything to me. So they actually avoid the parent when they come into the room. I want you to know that the dating pool, like the sort of late 30s plus single men, so many are avoidantly attached because they're oh, no. there. It's just all these like lone wolves. So I listened to this book on Audible called Wired for Dating by this guy named Stan Tatkin. Maybe, uh, Viara, you would know what these letters mean. So So he's a doctor of psychology. I think that's what that means. And then MFT. Know what that means? Anybody? It's a master's in future technology. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. MFT sounds, it makes me think of my health team because I'm a member of Maple Family Health Team. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Is he my family doctor? Yes, I think so. (laughs) anyway so i listened to this book called wired for dating because i've been doing like all this personal development stuff i'm like single for the first time in 10 years and listening to all the podcasts and reading all the books anyway he talks a lot about attachment theory and he does say that you can work towards secure attachment and actually i was listening back to part of it today and a thing that he said that i thought was interesting is he said that dating is a good time for that to like work on becoming more securely attached because each person that you date it's like a new beginning and you can like start you can try again you know yeah that's a really good point and i fundamentally believe in that i think that we are very flawed machines and we're we're set up for a whole range of behaviors that are not necessarily adaptive and sometimes they get us into trouble and we're just so damn comfortable with it that even when it it's wrong and it hurts us or hurts other people we just keep doing it because that's the only thing we know these are the grooves that we've etched right mm-hmm. the neural networks that we've set up there's really nothing that stops us from undergoing some neuroplasticity changing our brains but it is really tough right so yeah I think as long as you're aware of that, it's like training for anything else. It's like any other skill. You just need time and you need to be conscious of what's going on and just keep reminding yourself that it's a journey and it's not, you're not going to get there in one day. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to think of it. But then also as you're going through these people while you're dating and trying like, trying to like be a better human, (laughs) there's often like a a big line of wreckage. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. For sure bit shitty too or you know i'm very curious about dating i've never dated so mel can you share like any kind of small uh, experience with with us i actually like i okay so part of me is having a great time part of me there's like just so much disappointment in dating 
you know, like people are just dicks and you thought better of them or like something seems really promising and then the person ghosts you or like you talk and talk and you're like, oh my God, wow, this is the best conversation I've ever had. Like both of you are like, this is so crazy. It's wild. And then like you never talk to them again. Like there's just so much weird shit like that. That's so disappointing. But it's also really fascinating. (laughs) And I've met some cool people. But anyway, this book, so in the book, he has these quizzes where he makes statements, true and false statements about like your childhood. And he calls them different names. So he secure attachment, he calls those people who have a secure attachment style anchors. And okay, so he does this anchor quiz. So this is one of the true or false statements. When I was a child before the age of 13, at least one primary caregiver put their relationship with me above their own needs. Least, True. Right? Yeah, I did identify <laughs> with a lot of these. But then in the other quizzes, there are some stuff too. At least one primary caregiver would spontaneously hold me, rock me, kiss me and hug me. At least one primary caregiver spent a good deal of time with me face to face, eye to eye and skin to skin. Let's my dad see. used to um, bite my nails. Really? Yeah, if he need, if he thought my nails were too long, I remember being real like when I was really little, and he would just like as though he were biting his own fingernails. He would just bite mine, and in retrospect, that's like really adorable. But also, like three year olds' fingernails are disgusting. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't believe he did that. At least one primary caregiver saw me accurately and knew me deeply. So, like you know, there's a theme. This all sounds pretty right. sweet, right? So, yeah, like if people have that kind of childhood, like, ugh, probably want to punch them in the face. Their lives were so great. Those are the people I want to date, honestly. <laughs> That's not what I keep ending up with, though. Well, and it's interesting that you say that this book attached uh, talks a little bit about that, how, you know, by the time you, there's very few actually secure people in the dating pool, because they're usually secure and they form long lasting relationships. Mm-hmm. And so they are out there. It's just that you have to look a little bit harder. But the thing I don't like about this book, and I subsequently like one of my favorite things to do is to read reviews of anything like movies, books, whatever, whatever I consume, because I think like, I've got an opinion, but then other people have an opinion too. And sometimes they bring out things that I didn't see the first time. And so after I read or or listened to attached on audible, I went and read some reviews and people, uh, you know, psychologists who, who do attachment therapy and all sorts of things, they were pointing out that like this book written by a psychiatrist, I believe it just puts too much emphasis on attachment as being like the fundamental organizing factor behind everything that you do in your relationships. Right. So there is that, there is that tendency, especially in lay culture to latch onto a, a theme or, uh, you know, something like attachment and just over attribute importance to it. Like say, you know, try to interpret the entire world through the lens of attachment. And oftentimes it's not like that. Like we're very complicated. You know, how many times we've moved in our lives, uh, you know, as children, maybe you were a military kid that also can, uh, you know, determine how you are in relationships. There's a million little things that don't stem from your attachment, don't stem from your primary caregiver relationship at all. Right, and right, so, right. When we tend to look at it in this very kind of myopic view where like we're taking one thing like my attachment and we're trying to label ourselves and we're saying, well, this explains everything. It it can be very helpful, but it can also mean that we're actually like not 
opening ourselves up to like, I don't know, the beautiful complexity of like how there's other things in our lives that make us act out. There's the pandemic. There's a million things that influence us that are ongoing that kind of interact with whatever we baggage we bring and can influence us in unpredictable ways, right? So it's not super clean cut. And I think people don't like that. Most of us don't like complexity. We love simplicity. We love structure. So we love hearing like, hey, which of the four attachment styles am I? Or which personality style am I? I'm ENFJ or whatever people keep throwing around. And as a former psychologist and actually talking to many of my psychology colleagues who are currently doing personality testing, we all know that you cannot do that. You cannot call yourself a seven on some freaking scale or an ENFJ and then say, well, see, this This is why I do this. And this is, it, like it's very kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's like you've labeled yourself and therefore you're basically making sense of everything you do based on this label. However, the label itself is very fluid and very complicated. And the fact that psychologists use these labels in the first place is known to be a limitation. Like psychologists will be the first people to tell you, like, personality tests are super, super limited mm-hmm. in their predictive value. So you cannot use them like how people are using them in lay culture. So that's my like little podium. People put them in their Instagram, like social media bios. They'll be like, oh, yeah, INFJ or whatever. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? I know. I think you do have to take everything with a grain of salt. And like you're saying, you know, it's all part of a complex map of the human like mind and experience, blah, blah, blah. But I do think that there's a lot of validity to this attachment theory stuff. I really do. I think there's a lot of validity to it, too, as long as you're not like over attributing importance to it. Like this is the thing you cannot slot yourself into a bin and slot everybody you meet into a bin. I mean, you can, but (laughs) you shouldn't because I don't know. I think if you just narrow it down so much that you're only thinking of these very linear terms, you're missing out on a whole bunch of other things that are going on. Right. So it's like a good guiding thing, but you, you have to take other stuff into consideration. Yeah, for sure. Okay, can I read a couple of the statements from the other attachment styles? Go for it. Okay, so what's his name again? Stan Tatkin. Stan says, (laughs) for the avoidantly attached people, which he calls islands, at least one primary caregiver tended to stress the importance of my performance, intelligence, talents, or appearance. At least one primary caregiver discouraged dependence or neediness. When I became upset, at least one primary caregiver often gave me money or material objects in lieu of affection or attention. I wish. Right? (laughs) Give me the money. (laughs) Um, Mel, can I just ask, are these items, are these questions all together in one questionnaire or are there separate questionnaires? um, In the book, so he does a chapter on islands, waves, and anchors, a chapter each. And so he has this little quiz for each style for each one okay so that's one of the big no-nos in psychology is that you cannot because that's called leading questions right right so if you're reading a chapter on avoidant attachment and then you're only given items or questions that are only to do with that attachment style you're much more likely to answer yes to them even if you wouldn't otherwise have or you're much more likely to go into it with a kind of bias so we never ever ever in psychology would do that we would put all the items together in one big inventory which is the adult attachment inventory Mm -hmm. and people can go online and take this if they want where all the items are actually intermixed when i say items i mean questions they're all intermixed so you don't know what the valence or the weighting of each item is you don't know what the importance of 
each question is to a style. So you can't like predict what you're going to get, right? right? That's right, the right. point. You're not supposed to like go in expecting you're going to score high on this or that. You go in blind and you answer these questions in as honest way as possible. And then you get the score. That's it. And some of them are like weighted in reverse. So like a one actually means a high score. And so this is like the type of questionnaires you would get from a psychologist. But mm -hmm. if you're doing like more of a mainstream book, that's one of the dangers is that they kind of like, they don't know enough about psychometrics. And so they're taking this questionnaire that already exists on attachment styles, and they're breaking it apart into subcomponents in really not helpful ways, where people are going to just score highly on each attachment style, because you're leading people into scoring right. that way. That right. makes sense. I felt like the statements give some insight into the type of parental or caregiver relationship would be associated with like, I don't know, I just thought it was interesting. I totally agree with you. And I don't mean to like rain on any parade here. But let's bring in some more complexity. What your mood is currently, whether you're more depressed or more or less depressed in the current moment affects how you score on these items. So for instance, if you're more depressed, you tend to pay attention to more negative things. You right. tend to remember more negative things. Your memories are all negative. Your thoughts are more negative. And so you're going to answer yes on much more of these like more negatively valenced questions. And on a different day, maybe you're feeling better or maybe you're taking your medication or whatever, and you're going to answer a little bit differently. So our mood, our current mood in the moment can actually affect how we score on these things as well. So mm -hmm. there's just so many factors. And that's why psychologists know to not put too much emphasis on these personality tests or these these self we call them self-reported tests, right? So right. you're self-reporting on things that you, but your memory is completely fickle, Right. Like, mm -hmm. we know this. We know that memories can be faulty. We know that memories can be completely made up. So how people self-report is, is just kind of like a proxy of what the situation might be, really. Mm -hmm. And there's no better way, right? So the other approach we do in, in science is we'll ask the parents or the family members to report on that person. So not only are we asking you, Mal, to report on your own attachment cell, but we might ask your parents, what what was the relationship like when 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 everybody was young, but they suffer from the same biases, right? From the same mm -hmm. memory lapses and all these things that we all do, all human beings do. So short of actually being there with a camera and observing and having an objective observer, it's really difficult to get a perfectly objective view of mm -hmm. what people mm -hmm. are like and why. Right. right. And I don't know what that all means. It just means it's more complicated than the books say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to read like all the statements or whatever from the anxious one, which he calls wave. But like, basically, it sounds like the way he describes parents of these people, the parents were often like, almost more attentive. So like, you know, they gave a lot of attention to these kids, but then were inconsistent, right? So like, you know, they tell them like, you're my favorite kid, <laughs> or like confide in them and like give them all this extra special attention, but then put their own like emotional needs, for instance, over their kids emotional needs. Inconsistent, mm -hmm. right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've seen that in action, like, you know, when part of my PhD was just looking at moms playing with their babies. And I saw how for 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes, the mom can be extremely responding to her baby you know the baby looks at her and she notices right away and she responds and smiles and they play and then suddenly something happens halfway through and suddenly she just tunes out and then the baby is doing the same cues 
he's looking at mom or maybe even crying, crawling towards her. And there's literally zero response from mom. So that's very apparent when it happens in a session. Mm-hmm. And if you had that kind of childhood, then that can lead to this kind of resistant or anxious attachment because you don't know what's going to elicit a response from your from your mom or from your caregiver. And so you're just ramping it up to try to get that response. You're maybe resorting to these more quote unquote clingy behaviors because you just want to do anything that will elicit a response. You know, you can get that response. It's happened in the past. You just Mm -hmm. don't know when you're going to get it. And so you kind of just keep trying more and more to get it. Yeah, that Whereas makes if you're sense. Just, if your parents is consistently rejecting, like if they never respond, then you just learn, okay, they never respond. That's the avoidant type, right? Mm-hmm. That, that That's your organizational strategy is that you've just got a parent who just won't be there. So you can sort of organize yourself around the idea that like, yeah, there's nobody there for me, which sucks, but at least it's some kind of consistency. Right. So sad. Yeah. Going through this stuff, thinking about, you know, how my parents were with me and how maybe it's affected my like relationships as an adult, then I start thinking about like shit I do with my kids. And I'm like, oh, man. Oh, my God. (laughs) You're describing my entire PhD. My daughter (laughs) was six months old. I had to watch 300 videos of moms playing with their six month olds. And I would do this. She was born and I would do this like on my free time at nighttime when she was or when she was napping. And it was so much like guilt and shame because I would see some moms that were like highly responsive. And I was like, am I this kind of mom? Am I doing everything wrong? Like it was like I was literally rating other mothers and so obviously that spilled over onto like, how, how am I as a mother? Like what, I'm not doing that great. It's just like really insecure time. Yeah, I bet. And did you see like, like you did see some people in the videos and you were like, wow, that is stellar. That is a stellar mom, like really doing it right. I did. And I saw some moms who I just was like, this is way too over the top. Like I could not imagine being this responsive all the time that I scored really highly. So I feel like I probably fall somewhere in the middle. I was very like very available for my kids. I wore them in slings in the same sling for like years and years I bet shared with them but at the same time like I also was very overwhelmed easily I have like sensory issues so when there's lots of crying like I get overwhelmed and yeah um so the rating scale for moms was like from one to nine nine being the highest and one being the lowest and the worst and so I don't think I was ever at a nine on any dimension that I tested but I definitely was not like I don't think I was the lowest but what we saw about moms is that they actually have no very little insight the mothers who are what we call the most at risk mothers like mothers who are showing problematic parenting behavior they have the least insight about their parenting like if you ask them are you a good mom? And we don't use those terms. Like if you ask them, are you responsive to your child? Do you answer their cries and all these things? They would say, yes, absolutely. So it was kind of this weird thing that like the the less responsive or sensitive you were as a parent, it's almost like you had less insight about it. You didn't mm-hmm. see your flaw, your own flaws or like lack of responsiveness. Anyway, that's a tangent. It's also crazy. That's so interesting. I find it all super fascinating. And I've heard you talk about, you know, like grading these parents while you were a parent of young children yourself, which sounds like torture. But I think the thing (laughs) is, is that like, (laughs) as you said, things are more complicated than just like different attachment theories, although they are super useful. I think kids a lot of the time are resilient, even if their parent isn't the best. If they know their parent loves them, they can still get through stuff. Does that make sense? Yes and no. I mean, 
I totally agree with that resilience bit, except that it's also determined by genetic and environmental factors. So that was another bit of my PhD thesis and my my postdoc work was the interaction between genes and environment. So you have some children and some adults who are just more resilient. And so when we, you know, we hear these stories, not so much anymore. Um, I think that's not very like progressive anymore. But certainly like 10 years ago, you would hear these stories. Well, so and so they went through this trauma when they were young, and then they've been able to overcome it and look at them. And then another person went through the same trauma, and they were now doing nothing with their lives or whatever, right? So that was a kind of a common sentiment of like, pitting people against each other and saying, well, look, they had the same circumstances growing up, and one managed to get this amazing job and make something out of themselves and whatever. The fact is, we don't come preloaded with the same genetic material or epigenetic material. So that's kind of like the second layer of genetics. So if you have a different genetic background of genetic material, you might have the same environmental conditions. You might grow up in exactly the same home if with the same parents, with the same treatment, and you might turn out completely different based on your genetic predispositions. So that's why we have this dandelion versus orchid hypothesis, right? Some children are dandelions. They will thrive anywhere, mm. but they will never quite shine bright as much as the orchid children. However, the orchid children will only shine bright if they're in the optimum environment. And if they have a less than optimum environment, they will wither and die. And that's very metaphorical. They won't adapt. They won't be as resilient. They will suffer from mental health issues and relationship issues and all these things. So two people can on the surface experience identical conditions in the environment and parenting and turn out quite differently. So resilience itself is a really like plastic malleable thing and depends on who you are unfortunately like we're not all equally re resilient right but with the attachment stuff so if someone is like anxiously attached or avoidantly attached or whatever it's not like the worst thing in the world i feel like for someone to understand sort of those qualities in themselves and be aware of it there's like workarounds in interpersonal relationships. I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. You know, like someone who is anxiously attached, I can't say that I necessarily do this all the time, but I feel like it's really important if you are anxious and if you do have this like, you know, sort of like third eye about like relationship warning signs, I feel like you just have to find a way to communicate like I might need more reassurance, like just you to like, let me know if everything's okay or whatever. Effective communication. Yeah. Except, I mean, sometimes people are just not ready to hear it. I, I'm really like right. encouraged by the fact that what you're saying in the dating world is people are aware of attachment styles and different things like that. And that opens up the door to effective communication because you can then say to your partner, hey, you know how we're all different in attachment. And well, I tend to be more resistant or anxious and you're you seem to be more avoidant. And so if we're going to make this work, we're going to have to be aware of what you're doing that is kind of playing on your avoidant attachment or you're pushing me away and I tend to be more on the clingy side because I'm just more anxiously attached and that's my style mm -hmm. and so I'm going to have some behaviors that really throw you off and make you want to run and at the same time like we both have to interpret these through through each other's eyes and keep that in mind and maybe just uh, this is where I'm talking like the hard work comes in like mm -hmm. Because it's easy at this point for a partner to say, you know what, like, I don't, this is just, we're incompatible. Like, I'm just going to find someone who I don't have to struggle with so much, you know? Yeah. I also do think that there's, and I've 
I mean, I've heard about it in podcasts I've listened to. They call it like the anxious avoidant trap or the anxious avoidant relationship trap because anxious people and then avoidant people end up together often for whatever reason. And it's like very challenging. (laughs) Yeah, this book attached also talks about that. And there are steps that you can take to get closer. But Mm -hmm. I feel like parts of that book were just basically like, if you're anxiously attached, just look out for avoidance and don't date them. Right. But I think that's a bit reductive. Like, and I, I from the reviews that I read, it kind of from the psychologists that were weighing in, they seem to say the same thing. Like it was kind of almost like a life sentence. So that again, that comes back to the danger of like, if you read this kind of stuff and you pay too much attention to it, you just slot yourself into a bin and you think like, okay, this is the way I am and I'm doomed and, and I'm never, I should never date these people. And I don't know, it just kind of limits you a little bit. Yeah, totally. I think that a lot of people can date a lot of other kinds of people or types of people. You just have to like learn to work with it. And as you Mm -hmm. were saying, if people are aware of it, then they can work with it. And, you know, not that I'm slotting these things into the same category, but like neurodivergent or neuroatypical people, people with autism or whatever, you know, those people can date and and live with and work with a variety of different types of people. You just have to like know how you just have to communicate and know how to work with them and they have to know how to work with you. Like there's all sorts of challenges that can be overcome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And I think like, again, like VR, I totally get what you're saying about not like relying so heavily on this is like, this is going to dictate all of my relationships with every person I ever date or every man I ever meet, like, whatever. But I do think it can be quite enlightening to kind of like dive into some of this stuff. And it gives you some understanding of people's behavior where because I feel like I identify more with like the anxiously attached, whatever, secure ish, but like, a little bit anxious. So like, knowing about kind of these different types of behaviors and where it comes from can help you to like, or for me can help me to not take personally what would have like devastated me before when I was younger. And now I'm like, okay, so first of all, like, I'm kind of anxious. So I'm reading into things more than I ought to. And then secondly, like this person is more avoidant. And so therefore, they like actually need space. And I don't know, it's just, yeah, I hear you. And I agree with you. Like, it can definitely help you to organize some of the things that have happened and that are happening. Mm-hmm. And maybe why it they're just, happening. Yeah, like, maybe it just feels good to be able to like label that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it totally does. And I think we need that, right? We need that structure to our lives. Like we need to know why things are happening. And I think whatever helps you understand yourself, I think it's really a good thing. Just people take it to an extreme sometimes where it's just kind of reduced to that's the only dimension that matters. And that's not true. And so we just have to keep that in mind. Yeah, there's another podcast I listen to called like, I think it's the Love Life podcast or something like that. And it's this woman, she's a therapist. And I don't know what all of her credentials are, but she's a therapist, life coach person. And she talks to successful, smart women who are trying to find love. And so they're all trying to like figure out all these relationship patterns and why like they keep ending up with the same type of guy or whatever. And she is super into healing your inner child. So she does this whole thing where she walks them through like, okay, think of an age, like, what's the first age that pops into your head? And like, how did you feel as that child? And blah, blah, blah. It's interesting, too. Hmm. Can I just say something about the inner child thing? Please do. On the one hand, I often think about how I would like to be a kid again. Because 
I had a lot of excitement for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like a lot of hope for the future. I wouldn't say that I don't have hope or excitement for the future, but it is tempered with working and capitalism and the dread of climate change and just life. So like I was, I felt like I was a really happy kid in that way. Like I was so excited, like looking forward to the future and I would like spend a lot of time daydreaming and just like imagining stuff. But then also alternatively, you couldn't pay me to be a kid again because (laughs) growing up was so traumatic. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And I mean, like I, I, have to say about that. I had a great childhood, but I remember it being just really hard at certain points in my childhood. More for me, it was like the teenage years I found challenging. I, I would never be yeah. a teenager again. Never. It's hard. And like yeah. teenagers, they're so cool. Like they're just the coolest. But yeah, you got to feel for them. That was a terrible time. <laughs> Agreed. I thought so, too. I don't know. Anything else you wanted to cover about attachment? Um, I can tell you like a little bit of my own like personal example with recently coming to terms with attachment. Oh, my sure. own attachment. Yeah. So just a bit of backstory. My husband and I met, I was 15 and we started dating when I was 16. He was four years older than I was. Um, and we've been together since. So he is my first and only partner and basically the love of my life. And we have gone through everything together and we used to do literally everything together. But there has been times in our lives where I would feel this extreme distress that I never really questioned at specific instances. I couldn't really explain it. My husband obviously noticed it and was like bothered by it, but it didn't seem to coalesce into a whole until very recently when I read this book attached. And so Mel, this is like me basically saying like, I totally agree with you labels do help because they totally helped me like a few months ago, figure out what the heck was going on in my brain and why I'm acting the way I am. So what happened is uh, over the last few years, my husband has been getting back into skateboarding. And over the pandemic months, it was basically like, very much like his big passion, like he found a couple of people to skateboard with, and they would go out like they still do on like multiple occasions a week for several hours. And as you can imagine, like pandemic is just like been kind of it's like an like a petri dish for all sorts of like psychosocial experiments that have gone on in different people's lives. Like everybody has had some kind of effects from it, right? Seclusion, isolation, yeah, all sorts of things. And so for me, something like in January, February, just kind of weird happened where I just was feeling extremely emotional, really like insecure. I felt like I was unloved, like nothing. It it was just not me. Like I just didn't feel like myself. And it was really triggered by when he would leave to go skateboarding for a few hours. And he, you know, he like basically said like, this is exactly like all these other times in our lives when you had a problem with me, like doing things away from you and with my own friends or whatever. And he's completely right. Like that is exactly how it is. Like even to the point that the most irrational example I'll give you, and I'm being really vulnerable here. I know other people are going to be listening to this, so please don't judge me. So I was like pregnant, probably eight or nine nine months pregnant with my second child of three. And my husband and like he wanted to get a tattoo and so 
he and I had been like looking, like doing a ton of research and we found the tattooist that was really good and we were happy with, and we even talked to her and she helped us design this amazing tattoo. And so I knew the design, I knew everything. And then the day came when he would like go and get his first session. It was like an eight hour session. And when he came back, I just like broke down. Okay. This is the really irrational part. (laughs) I was just like crying on the bed and I was basically like, he has begun a new life. He is on a new path of, I don't really know what my brain was thinking. Like, I don't know what kind of path I imagined. Maybe like just hanging out at tattoo parlors and just getting tattoos all day long. I, I literally didn't know. This is why it's irrational. Yeah. But I was like, he is no longer my person. I'm no longer his person. Some rift has occurred because of this eight hour session that he spent with this tattooist and getting tattooed and doing something that I don't, was not a part of. So I'm no longer in his in-group. Like, that's how, that's what I thought. And he thought it was, like, incredibly silly at the time. But I was pregnant, so we kind of chalked it up to, like, oh, you're just really emotional because you're pregnant. But there's been other instances like that throughout where there's this huge resistance that I've had to, like, him doing things with with people that doesn't involve me. And part of it is because he literally was my attachment figure after my parents because I was, like, so young when I met him. And part of it is just uh, what I've realized is I am anxiously like between secure and anxiously attached like that is my attachment style so when I feel that there's a rift I tend to like overshoot or overreact right like even small things that happen that are not really instances of a rift in the relationship I interpret them as rifts so this latest right. like skateboarding thing was huge rifts and it was like several times a week for several hours and so each time he went I would get like literally how my children used to get when I dropped them off at daycare like I would dread when he would leave so before like an hour or two before he left my cortisol would skyrocket like my heart was beating fast I was having separation anxiety it was just like really really outrageous and I didn't know what to call it until I read this book and I was like, yep, this that's probably it. And subsequently, I read a book on jealousy, which I can also um, send you for the show notes. It's a really, really amazing book that talks about like the onslaught, kind of the emotional hijacking that your brain does when you're feeling jealous and why and how it's all related to like these underlying feelings of insecurity and all these other things. And dealing with these feelings has been one of the hardest things I've had to do ever in my life. Because it is up and down. It's like two steps forward, one steps back. Like one day I think I'm totally fine and I'm just myself and I can let go and like he can be his own person and do this thing. And then my physiology kicks in and I have this insane stress response where I'm just like feeling extremely stressed and I start being really clingy. And it's not like me. I'm 40 years old and I've never Mm -hmm. acted like consistently this way for a long time and now it's just kind of come to a head I think because of the pandemic because I haven't been out with people and doing things and doing photo shoots and just hanging out with people Mm -hmm. so literally he is he and the kids are like now my everything for the last year and a half so again it's just like this culmination of weird like factors that come together where it might it might have happened incidentally here and there in the past but now it's like really been prominent because of the uh, the environmental factors right like what is your environment like because that can make things worse or better so yeah that's my story yeah I relate to a lot of that like you saying um you know you're behaving like you have these like clingy behaviors or whatever and it's not you and I can totally relate to that because with the dating thing like I don't know there have just been definitely so many times where and I talk to my therapist about it fucking all the time. (laughs) When I see like potential 
in something, that's when my head just goes batshit crazy. And then I don't know, it's just like, I'm just so tightly wound, like waiting for something to go wrong. And then when it does, it's like confirmation bias. <laughs> Absolutely. And we actually sometimes can cause it to go wrong, right? Totally, totally. Conversations with my husband, he's like, there's no problem at all. But it's this behavior that's the problem. And this is gonna, if anything, this is what causes a rift between us, because there's no rift, but you're like finding rifts and like, really mm-hmm. wanting to make it true. And so it's your behavior that is actually the thing that's causing the problem. Yeah. Well, and here's where I think the attachment stuff comes in handy, like not only in understanding other people, but obviously like in understanding yourself and being able to like dissect those behaviors and try to fix them, right? If you know, like, okay, I tend to overreact emotionally, or I tend to like, jump to the feeling of feeling rejected when there's not necessarily any reason to jump to that conclusion. Yeah, I think just being aware of it, you can you can do that work, like you were saying. Well, and the, I think that the difficulty for me, like the reason I say it's so it's been so difficult for me is because literally, you're like, one part of your brain is thinking a thought that the other part of your brain has to say, this is an irrational thought. And so when you're thinking a thought that you're convinced is true, it's really incredibly difficult to tell yourself it's not true, right? right. Like you feel it with every fiber in your being, you're like, this is the end of the relationship. There is a problem here. I'm left out. I'm whatever it is. Right. And so then having to step back and be like, no, that's just my awkwardly jealous, anxious brain talking. It's really difficult because you don't believe that. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of time to be like, I'm spotting a really unhealthy thought right now. And it's just a thought and Mm -hmm. it means nothing. Yeah. My therapist is always talking about writing stuff out. Because if you get it out of your head, it just like you kind of make some room up there, you know? (laughs) So true. Uh, Viera, I appreciate you being so vulnerable with us. And I totally understand those feelings of like, this is cool. Nothing's wrong. But why do I feel like a psychopath? (laughs) Yeah. And it's really, really hard. And and it's really upsetting because you feel like you're being betrayed, except you're being betrayed by your own brain. Oh, Yeah. yeah, totally. Anxiety, man. Fucking bitch. She's a whore. She's a whore. (laughs) (laughs) So I had written down any recommended reading, but I feel like you've mentioned a couple of things. So there's attached and then what was the other one you just said? Uh so there was attached and then there was the other one that was on jealousy. The jealousy cure, it's called. And it's by Robert Leahy. I'm gonna send you these so you can add them. Okay. And then the book attached is by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. Amir Levine is a psychiatrist. So I think both of them are written by psychiatrists, maybe. I'm not sure. But but the other book that I was going to recommend. So this is a really funny thing that happened. Someone on my Instagram sent me a message a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. And she was like, I've been so inspired. She's been following my like photography, like Instagram, like Viera Milova photography, like the family stuff. She's like, I've been so inspired by your images. And I want to send you my book. I'm an author and I just want to send you my book. And I was like, okay, like, can I pay you? Like, what does it cost? And she's like, no, I'm going to send it to you for free. And I was like, can I just at least pay you shipping costs? Like, I feel so weird. I want to support other artists. So and she's like, Nope, I'm not having it. You've inspired me so much. And I hope I can do the same in return. So anyway, she sent me this book. And it was just this funny thing. Because like, how often does that happen? And what's the likelihood of me liking this book, right? So the book is called Sleeping Funny by Miranda Hill. And it is freaking amazing. It is full of short stories. She's based in Toronto. 
And I don't even really want to tell you any more than that. I just think everybody should buy this book and it's fantastic. Each short story is completely different from the others and I love it. So yeah, give it a try. It sounds really cool. It's so cool. There's this one story um, that I, I mean, they're so different. There's one story about like all these kids are having lice in the school and it's like this kind of like upper scale neighborhood. And so the parents are kind of like, it's like hush hush. Right. But the kids are all like overrun with lice. And then there's this one mother that moved into the neighborhood and she doesn't fit like the prototype of like all the other mothers, you know, who are kind of like very well put together and this woman who moved in she's like kind of a hippie she's an artist and she has this flower garden she doesn't have a grassy patch in the front of her lawn like everybody else and she and her husband like have loud sex and nobody else does these kinds of things on the block so it's it's like i don't know that's just one of the stories anyway definitely read it um i think everybody will really enjoy it sleeping funny by who miranda hill sleeping funny by miranda hill nice Hey, Liz, have you been like listening to or watching or reading anything? I have been actually. So I um, recently started watching cooking videos on YouTube Oh, more than I used to. <laughs> so basically, I've always loved the Food Network and this Food Network doesn't seem to show actual cooking shows anymore. It seems to just be like weird competitive shows, like competition shows where they have to like run through grocery stores with grocery carts and stuff like I just don't really get it. But what I've realized it is, well, that's like actually a game show with Guy Fieri. But what I've realized is that a lot of these cooks or people who are professional cooks or have these ambitions to be TV cooks have their own YouTube channels. So I've been watching like a shit ton of cooking stuff online. Uh, So I've been watching one woman who has a YouTube channel. Her name is Marion Gadsby, Gradsby, but you can just Google Marion's kitchen And she is Australian. She's half white Australian. And then her mom is from Thailand. And so all of her cooking is Thai and or Asian inspired. Mm. And I love her stuff so much that I've actually, I just bought a carbon steel wok that has to be seasoned. (laughs) And I've been using that. So I love her stuff. So I've been like making like more stir fried rice, different kinds, stir fried noodles, which I've never thought I could make. I've made stuff that like looks like it could be from a restaurant. So I feel pretty like in terms of, you know, how like Asian food or, or Thai curries or like really good fried noodles from a restaurant, they seem kind of impossible. But I've like totally made them. It's not it's not that hard even. Nice um, so work. Cool. And then I've also been watching a lot of another chef. Her name's Allison Roman, and she has a YouTube channel. And she's very like, she's like white lady from America. She lives in New York. She's very like, has cute red nails all the time. And she's very like, she's kind of like one of us, sort of. Like, she seems like someone we would be friends with. You know, she wears like high-waisted jeans and cute t-shirts. And she just makes, she she seems to know a lot about food. And she makes really delicious but simple food. And I want to buy both of her cookbooks. But I got to slow my roll. But I did just (laughs) buy a 12-inch stainless steel skillet because I felt like I needed more room. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I've been watching a lot of food stuff. Nice. And like, and I made aioli. I made garlic aioli last night, which uh, I've never made in my life. In my mind, the word aioli and the word areola are the same. They're almost the same, <laughs> except one's kind of a boob and one's mayonnaise, essentially. I know. But like, whenever I hear one, it makes me think of the other, you know? <laughs> 
Well, they're both amazing. Yeah, especially when you put them together, you know? <laughs> you. <laughs> the original nipple cream. Oh, yeah. What about you? Um, I didn't really come up with anything good this week. But you know what I've been watching? You know what I've been watching? What have you been watching? Dawson's Creek, baby. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I have. I'm having, like, some pretty good throwbacks because... As I don't know if you know, Vera, but I went to a fancy boarding school in high school in New England. Oh, and wow. So I lived in a dorm. And on Wednesday nights, all of the girls or like a whole lot of them would pile down into the TV room and all watch Dawson's Creek at like eight o'clock every Wednesday night. Aww. And so it's like pretty, I don't know. It's not even that it's sentimental. It's just like it's bringing me back a little bit, you know? Yeah. No, it's like foundation formative experiences right i just got into season two and the hair is so 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 bad in season two like a lot of fluffing like it looks like they fluffed it up but like with a lot of hairspray it's like looking kind of stiff oh (laughs) frosted tips pacey got frosted tips the beginning of season two nice yeah oh god i just heard of this um one of my work friends recommended this to me and i haven't watched it yet but i really want to so do either of you know who tignataro is Mm mm-hmm yes Okay, so she's like an amazing, a hilarious comedian, but she also is funny to me in a lot of ways because she's so f- monotone. Right. And she's on a reboot of Star Trek that JM and I have been watching. Uh, she's on Star Trek Discovery, like she has a role, but she's just Tignatero on a Star Trek show. Like, it <laughs> because she's not acting at all they've just plonked her in there and put her in a uniform and so she is famously apparently maybe in her own life famously uh she doesn't know any celebrities and jm is the same way which is one of the reasons why this was sounded funny to me but she has uh, a youtube channel or a youtube show called under a rock with tignatero and she gets celebrities and the first of which was james vanderbeek from Dawson's Creek, which is why it remind you reminded me. <laughs> and she doesn't know. She genuinely does not know who they are. She does not know who they are. And so she asks them, she's like asking them questions, like to try and figure out who they are. And it's apparently it's hilarious because a lot of these people have clearly never had a conversation like this before because they are famous. Like it's pretty humbling for them to be on a show where the whole thing is that the person doesn't know who you are. So I am pretty stoked to watch that. <laughs> what is it called? It's called Under a Rock with Tig Nataro. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and I know I know for sure one of the guests is uh, James Vanderbeek because I saw the thumbnail. Hilarious. Yeah. I want to watch that. Oh, yeah, so do I. I don't get why everybody's into Dawson, though. I feel like he's a bit of a dweeb. Like, you guys watched it back in the day, right? Oh, yeah, not a fan. I just Googled it, like, this um, Tignataro um, under a rock. And, like, honestly, the other ones, I have no idea. Like, Kaylee Cuoco and Lena Haiti. Haiti? Kaylee, Kaylee Cuoco was on uh, Big, Bang. Big Theory. Bang Theory. I don't know the name of the other person you just said, but I might know what about, the name. What about Tony Shalhoub? Shalhoub? Tony Shalhoub, he's an actor. Yep, I know okay. who he is. These are not famous, famous people, but like Tony Shalhoub, he's had his own like crime drama. He's been in stuff. He's, he's Debbie t- Ryan. Debbie Ryan? Yeah, yeah, I know who that is. No, I don't know who that is. Glenn Howerton? No. No. Rich Eisen? Okay, so maybe we should have a, a show called Under a Rock. <laughs> we should have our own VR Under Liz. a Rock. <laughs> That's funny. You just name celebrities and we go, nope. 
Nope. Yep. <laughs> That's such a great idea. <laughs> I think this this thing's got legs. <laughs> um, do either of you have anything you would like to plug or promote? Social media or events or anything? Or whatever? Anything at all? I'm sure Vera does. No, I don't. I'm You're just a photographer. Sad. I'm, you have keeping, so many I'm laying low. I have an exhibition coming out in the fall in the Loyalist Museum, the cool. um, LNA County Museum. And it's all about the extraordinary, ordinary lives. So I photographed 10 families during the pandemic, 11 families, actually, in all sorts of different activities that they enjoyed. And it's finally going to hopefully be installed in the fall. It's been a really long process. We planned it before the pandemic and then it was meant to be installed like last year and things got delayed. And then with the photo shoots during the pandemic, like I had to wear masks. So it was kind of interesting because as a photographer, like you use your face a lot to connect with people. And if you can't smile at them, like it's kind of weird. Mm, um, yeah. So... Yeah, so it's just been weird. But and anyway, that's happening in, in the fall. And I'm extremely nervous and excited. I just want people to like their photos, like the families, you know? Congratulations. Oh, that's sure amazing. Brought. Yeah, that is amazing. They're going to love them. Yeah, I, I hope so. We'll see. I mean, it is fo- all photojournalism, right? So it's very different from what a lot of the families are used to. Where's the exhibit? Uh, it's the LNA Museum and Archives. And it's right downtown Napanee. Oh. And whenever it opens, I'm going to be boasting about it all over social media. But it hasn't yet. So it's still several months away. Nice. I can't wait. Oh, well, I'm happy you're excited. <laughs> I won't commit. To- well, how long is it going to be up? <laughs> Melody, I won't like commit. three months, I think. Like three or four months. So like I- until January. I'll try to see it. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, that's about as much commitment as I need. I, didn't, I don't need any more than that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would love to commit, no, but I, 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 I just can't. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I commit Life's to you with my right heart now. forever. Aww, that, that actually means more than any other kind of commitment. <laughs> well, you got it. <laughs> um, Thanks, Mel. Hey, where do people find you on social media to hear you boasting about your show? find me so if they're on instagram which is pretty much the most happening place right now for me i'm on at least two different places either at viara milova or at quirky love photography yeah that's the main two places noise real noise liz do you have any plugs uh yeah you can go to my instagram that i occasionally post things in my stories about food i've cooked uh it's lizouse at lizouse l-i-z-z-o-u-s-e and check it out it's intermittent. Ooh. <laughs> Mysterious. <laughs> Liz, tell them about your other one. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. It's because I haven't had any inspiration lately to do one, but I want to. I also have another one called Self Love Selfies, and it's self love underscore selfies. And so it's me taking self portraits, also trying to like encourage other people to take self portraits, but not in a like obnoxious selfie sort of way, but in a like self love sort of way, because I think everyone's beautiful. I love it. Thanks. Well, I'm just going to plug the podcast myself because I can't take on any painting anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) So the podcast, you can find us at teachmetigerpodcast.ca at Teach Me Tiger Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Teach Me Tiger Podcast. If you sign up, 
you will probably only pay like a month because I'm going to go on break real soon. And don't forget, next episode is episode 69, season finale, all about woo, woo, woo. oral sex. Nice. <laughs> 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 Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Aww. Thanks for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. I hope I wasn't too much of a downer and like, you know, devil's advocate type thing. No, no. It's good. You're right. Like, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. It was great. It was great. (laughs) Great. (laughs) All right. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. And remember, it's a jungle out there. of animals in the jungle don't judge <laughs> that was amazing that was the best <laughs> <laughs> oh.